The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic with the Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, and with me from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. From the Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Get in touch with the show's Twitter account at The Phil Hay Show. And right now you can subscribe to The Athletic for that special price of $3.99 a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. All the analysis, all the in-depth features from the very best team of football writers around. And you get all these podcasts ad-free. You've been cheating on us this week, Phil, hanging around with David Ornstein and uh, doing um, an Ask Ornstein as the guest, talking about Leeds's transfer plans this summer. By the way, you can find that on the Athletic UK YouTube channel. Have a look for that. Yes, and also with the Blue Moon podcast as well, if you want to look out for that. I'm having a bit of a chat about Manchester City. The Onstein questions, there's a, a kind of expanded version of that on the website. I think it will be on, if you're listening Friday morning, it will be on there now, um, a mailbag from us answering all your questions about Leeds United, including inevitably some about Rodrigo de Paul. <laughs> so it's basically just a slightly inferior version of the Q&A that we did before. Yes, but I, do you know what? I'm I'm going to pay tribute to our subscribers and readers because there were about 200 questions and I have to say that there was only a very small or surprisingly small fraction that even mentioned the poll which I was amazed about it seemed as if people were deliberately showing restraint they'd obviously been listening to the last podcast and are we going to get him is that the the general vibe pass if you want to subscribe to The Athletic head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and get that 40% discount theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and in the meantime have a look for the Athletic UK YouTube channel for the Ask Ornstein with Phil. One thing we don't need to ask Ornstein about is Sheffield United's demise. They're very much going down and we beat them at the weekend, taking us to 42 points and a cruise to the finish line. Yeah, we don't need to ask about relegation either. I don't really feel like any of us were thinking about it or talking about it once the win was recorded down at Fulham. I don't know about you two, but I haven't sensed at any point this season that it was looking like a real threat. And I, I certainly think since the wins over Burnley and West Brom at the end of December, it's felt as if Leeds were heading for 40 plus points and it, it felt as if they were going to leave the bottom three behind pretty comprehensively, which they, they have. They've obviously got three very difficult games coming up, but I think they will get extremely close to, to 50 points, if not go past that mark, which would be excellent return for your, your first season back in, in the division. And again, just that extra bit of class and, and quality that Sheffield United didn't have that kind of assurance and confidence which seems to be growing and has grown throughout the season I think the performance in Bielsa's second year was an improvement on his first year and I'm now getting to the, the point where I think the performance in his third year is an improvement on the second I think given the, the rise in standard the jump in levels and the number of quality teams in the Premier League to be 11th and on 42 points after 30 games is quite some achievement to answer that question, I think my relegation fears, it was more just a kind of lingering doubt on the periphery. I was never worried about going down. And while we're still not 100% mathematically safe, I'm fine with it and I have been for the most part this season. I think so as well. I think it's helped that we've never we've never had a run of bad games. Every time we've had a bad result or a couple of indifferent performances, we've always managed to pull something out shortly afterwards. And it's, it's we've always been a, a very comfortable distance, even from the opening few weeks of the season. We've always felt, at least a couple of wins away from the um, the relegation zone, and until until Fulham have started showing a bit of life as well in West Brom and Sheffield United, it's looked like there's been two relegation places gone almost within within the first month of the season. So it's I think that's helped as well to just mean that we, we've had to essentially be better than a group of about ten teams to stay up. I don't know whether the players would ever admit to this, but it must help them psychologically to know that there are teams at, at the bottom of the table who are really struggling and, and making no progress at a time when they are picking up points and. Like Michael said, that there's never been a chronic spell this season. There have been little periods where the form's dropped off slightly. There have been some heavy defeats. There hasn't been a huge amount of consistency on the winning front either. It's been very much on and off. But I'm not sure you could have asked for an awful lot more than that. And and the bottom line is that your teams further down the table have not been able to match it in any way. They have not been able to, to keep up with Leeds' pace or to keep up with their form. And as I say, I, I felt certainly from the turn of the year onwards that it was it was almost certain that Leeds would have a second season in this league. I feel like part of the concern about it as well is that we maybe still don't have 100% faith in the squad because we still have some vague memories of them under Heckingbottom and how bad they were then. And it's almost that, what if they turn back into that and we then yeah. we will go down? Whereas I think we can probably now fairly safely say that Stuart Dallas is a really good footballer and 
that Click is good in Bamford is all of all of a sudden good in the Premier League, and it's I think there's those there's still has always been those slight fears of of how bad those players have been in the past, whereas we we maybe now can forget about that. It should be said as well that there have been little spells under Bielsa in his previous two seasons, particularly round about Christmas and then the the very tail end of his first season where the results have dipped and the performances have dropped. And you can never write that off as a as a possibility. And I think because his team do concede a lot of goals, there is always the risk in the background that the goals they score dry up and, and suddenly the, the form becomes a problem. But essentially, they, they've done what I think a lot of us expected them to do, which was to transfer the form from the Championship to the Premier League on the basis that the style of play and the, the tactical approach is very much suited to the division, I feel. It's, it's very much suited to winning you games in this league. And, and while you're going to take some defeats as part of the bargain. I do feel more and more that through those two years in the Championship, Bielsa built a side that was not only tailor-made for that division, but was actually tailor-made for promotion as well. And and we've seen that this season. It, it has been a, a really smooth transition and it's given them something very, very good to build on, I feel. I think the closest we came to a rut was probably around that Palace-Leicester-Wolves time. But even then it didn't persist did it for very long. We got out of that particular problem quite quickly. I think with those two games as well, you came away feeling that actually it could have been slightly different, even though they deserved to lose both. There was that point at 2-1 against Leicester where Hernandez hit the bar. There was the, the disallowed goal from Bamford down at Palace. Um, defensively, they were weak and, and they were a bit of a shambles leads, but they were still in the games. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like the, the slightly more comprehensive defeats where you really couldn't argue the toss over the result. And, um, you know, as I say, they, they didn't really deserve to take anything from those fixtures, but they could have done. And I think that's been the story of, of the entire season. They've, with a very few exceptions, they've felt as if they've been in every game and they've felt as if they've competed in every game. And and even, you know, if I think of Spurs away, for example, it was very sort of comfortable and, and organised 20, 25 minutes, right up until the point where Melier gave the, gave that poor pass away and, and Alioski was drawn into the, into the foul and, and gave away the penalty. And it has been really, really impressive. And, and as you say, they there was never a point at which it felt as if, you know, there was this sort of creeping death of the results are turning here and, and this could become problematic. And as I say, I, I think they've got a very, very good chance of going past 50 points now. I feel like some of the early season concerns as well were about how crucial Hernandez was last year and how he was injured and not maybe up to speed for the Premier League. But then I feel like Rafinha's arrival just blew that all away because all of a sudden we had someone else in the team who could create something from nothing and would chip in with goals and assists for us. And I, I, that, for me, was a big deal. And the defence as well, replacing Ben White and the sort of angst around not getting him and then, OK, we'll have to find out, is Llorente going to be any good? Is Cock going to be any good? So it, it's just taken a little bit of time to bed in, hasn't it? I think just to say as well that there was the question, obviously, over whether Bamford would be good enough, which he clearly has been. And it's not even just been his finishing, it's been his assists as well. We all thought that Phillips would be perfect for the Premier League, but... You never know for sure until you're tested and he has been tested and he's been infinitely adequate to the point where he's he's now in the England squad. And even at the stage where we've had this quite noticeable drop-off from Matthias Cleek, suddenly Dallas just does what Dallas tends to do. I was saying in my mailbag, he's like the T-1000 from Terminator and that you say, can you play in goal? And he just turns into a goalkeeper. And he's now looking... I, I always thought of him as a competent and reliable number eight if you needed him to fill in there. But I'm looking at him now and thinking that little by little, he's turning into actually a, a really credible option there going further forward than this. And we did a, a piece on him, I think about 18 months ago now, and I spoke to Uwe Rosler, who was the manager who, who signed him at Leeds. And he said in there, before Dallas had really played as a centre mid, he said to me, I always thought Dallas could be an eight. We, we signed him as a right winger. And that's what he was at the time when he came from Brentford. But I did feel that he was that versatile, that if you, you got the team right and you got the balance right, or if you needed him to do it, he could play in a, a central central area. So that sort of thing is, has helped. Again, when, when players have dropped out, it's never been significantly damaging. They've, they've always um, found a way to cope. And once again, and this has been the story right the way through with Bielsa, everybody has got better. Yeah, Dallas is remarkable. I was always, always persistently sort of underwhelmed with him, not quite sure what he did, what he was for. But his decision-making is absolutely impeccable. His positioning and his, his energy and his running is probably my player of the season, I think. I think he'd be mine. He was my player of the season last year, although I, I made that choice before we had the big run-in from Hernandez. And it was Hernandez who took the club's player of the year award in the end. But I think I made the point last season that up until the, the lockdown, I'm not sure you would have included Hernandez in the shortlist for player of the year. I'd, I'd been good and he'd been effective. But he hadn't been standout and, and he wasn't standout until he, you know, he was 
touched by God in those those last nine games. But when you said there, I've never really known what Dallas is. I would agree with you, but I think we've discovered what he is, which is just wildly versatile and incredibly able when it comes to a manager saying to him, can you play here and can you play competently? And him saying, yes, can, and adapting extremely quickly. And, and on the basis of form at the moment, you wouldn't play click ahead of him. I'd absolutely have Dallas in, in that midfield. I don't think there's a choice to be made. Just returning to Saturday then, and the one to watch where we picked out was, was Heckingbottom last week for obvious reasons. I mean, Saturday's game, returning to the theme we said earlier as well, it never felt like we were were playing with any pressure on Saturday, whereas you could say the opposite of Sheffield United. It was just desperate at times for them, wasn't it? And there was that spell in the second half where we'd sort of pegged them back into their half and they'd have possession, but then just give it up to us every every five or six passes. It was absolutely crazy. So that's what led me to the question of when Heckingbottom said uh, that Leeds made subs to live with Sheffield United, they, they made subs to live with us. That's delusional, isn't it? Yeah. Bielsa made the point afterwards that Leeds spent a lot of the game getting into very good positions and not making anything of them. And that that was the case. It was 2-1, but I felt Leeds should have dug three, four goals out of that game quite easily. I wouldn't criticise Heckenbottom too much for Sheffield United's performance, given that he's been there for two, three, or been in charge for two or three weeks. But looking at them, it did remind me a lot of Heckenbottom's Leeds and that they were kind of there and they were kind of competing and they were kind of organised, but there was no real identity. There was no spark. There was no there's no managerial bounce, which I think was the, the story of his entire time in charge at Ellen Road, that it just never took light and it never got going. It never felt as if there was a transition from Christensen's team to Heckenbottom's team. You felt as if the, the massive muddle that had been left by Christensen just persisted right the way towards the end of the season, at, at which point Leeds decided, look, this is not working and we need to, to have a completely different strategy and, and to take a, a different view of this. As I say, it, it felt like they were making up the numbers and they were they are now there to see out games. And I think if beforehand you couldn't really see much logic in Heckenbottom being manager long-term at Sheffield United, I think after that game, you're more and more inclined to think that they need something completely different and a, and a new thought. The substitutions, the late introduction, I guess, of Robin Koch for Stuart Dallas was a bit of a substitution designed to tie things up. And there was a little hint at the end of you know a few opportunities for Sheffield United to nick a point out of that. But I think it's stretching it to say that over the, the 90 minutes, Bielsa was making substitutions to cope with, with Sheffield United. I think Sheffield United spent the entire game coping with Leeds. Would you like to see Hecky go back to repeat his achievements at Hibs? Absolutely. I mean, anybody who can do that is um, in my cool book, 100%. The feeling seems to be with him that this might get his taste back for management. I don't mean the results and everything else, because clearly it's going to be a pretty grim end to the season. But just being back in the dugout and back around the first team squad and, and doing that that sort of coaching. But it's so long since he was, you know, or it feels so long since he was last managing that that can't be the answer for them down in the championship. And And as I say... They were sort of in the game, they were there, they were kind of giving it a go, but I think kind of giving it a go is probably the best you could say about the period when Heckenbottom was in charge of Leeds. There was just nothing more to it than that. There was no threat, was there, from Sheffield United? It reminded me of the the game against Newcastle where we, we put five past them and it could have been that again, I think. it was. There were the chances there, we just didn't take them or at the yeah. last minute we'd, make it, we'd misplace a pass and it went, look, we carved them open, we just squandered the opportunity, but they didn't... In the same way as that Newcastle game, I, I left thinking, I don't know what, I don't know what it is they're trying to do. Really, they just, they're just turning out on the pitch. It's like it has a vibe of almost a Sunday league team where you're like, just go and get in four four two lads or whatever. Just play a four, just go and play some game. Have you not often thought that though with um, a lot of the managers in this division that sometimes when you look at what Bielsa's doing, and then obviously to a greater extent you're talking like Guardiola and Klopp, uh, they're just playing like a different sport to some of the coaches at the bottom end. Well. I'm not going to be disrespectful here, but on Monday I went to Harrogate Town because Rebecca Welsh was referee, the first female referee to be appointed to an EFL game. Harrogate lost 2-0 to Port Vale. And this sounds very obvious, but the gulf between what we see with Bielsa and what I saw at Harrogate, and admittedly it's not a great pitch at Harrogate, and you're talking League 2, you know, mid-table League 2, but it it felt vast. And I, I felt like looking at the players as well, you're seeing a different type of athlete, a different sort of body shape, a, a different athleticism to what you what you get in the Premier League. And I think even in the Premier League this season, you're right, that there is a bit of a division in the sense that 
there are some teams that that don't seem to have that about them. There are some like Bielsa's who who definitely do. And I guess the most satisfying thing about Saturday was that you always felt that the win was coming, even though Leeds were kind of making heavy weather of making the best of the good positions they got into, and they had they had plenty of good positional play. You just sensed that they would have enough because they've kind of got into the mindset now where they believe they've got enough, and they're very very good at, at getting the best of these games that that are pretty tight. And they, they deserve to win, without a doubt. As I say, the, the whole thing about Leeds making substitutions to cope with Sheffield United, I, I didn't follow that at all. I think the ease of the win as well has to be set against the backdrop of them knowing their fate. Like when we played them early in the season, that was a game that genuinely could have gone either way. And there were there was a really good save from Melier in there. And was it our second game of the season? It felt like it was it was a, a proper battle did that one. Whereas this one, it felt going into it like we would win comfortably. And the game felt panned out much like that as well that's why I said going into it that I'd rather face a Paul Heckingbottom Sheffield United than a Chris Wilder one because I thought I think I mean Baldock did scrap and fight for every ball didn't he as we saw very very graphically but I think a Chris Wilder side has got more bite about it than that Heckingbottom one which was fairly toothless whether it did towards the end I'm not sure but it certainly did back in I think it was third game actually wasn't it a second away game but that was tight and it could have gone either way that although it deserved to go to Leeds in the end but that early Melier save was key it felt on Saturday like Leeds had the measure of that from the start and you're right I mean the, all the imagination has gone out of Sheffield United they've known for a long long time now that they're toast and, and they're going down but I think those are the games that you've you've still got to, got to make the most of the games you've still got to win those are the games that are pretty embarrassing if you end up losing them like Newcastle for example did away at, at Bramall Lane. So a, a good result and just keeps things ticking over. Just on that Baldock challenge, I know it was in a way quite nice to have a game without any VAR. What was the thinking behind that not being looked at by by the referee on the pitch? I have absolutely no idea. I, I can only assume that because he'd banged his head and he he had, I think initially after the challenge, there was that suspicion of, is he milking this so that Graeme Scott forgets about the fact that he's gone in two-footed but when you saw the replay he did bang his head very heavily on the ground as he went into that tackle and given that he was replaced not long after and was quite clearly looked to be suffering from concussion that there's no doubt at all that it did have a, a big impact on him but that was that was a red card I mean it it didn't even seem like a particularly difficult decision and because of the impact and the sort of aggression of the tackle in real time it was one of those that made you wince slightly Roberts got absolutely crunched it stood to reason that naturally the referee, if he wasn't sure himself, would have said to the VAR, have a look at this because I'd like I'd like to see this again. I'd like to know what went on. And and given that it was two-footed and it was a bit of a scissor challenge and everything else, I don't understand why, if it wasn't looked at again, that decision was, was taken not to refer it. And if it was referred, how it is that that's gone by whoever's looking at it and, and they've thought no that's that's not a red card the fact that he's been concussed or he's banged his head is neither here nor there that has to be looked after and you, you have to be careful with his treatment but it doesn't preclude the referee from giving him a red card which he should have done Is there any mechanism in place for the clubs to ask the question on things like that? Very much so and, and Leeds have over the months of the season have asked from time to time about decisions like for example Bamford's disallowed goal at Crystal Palace and, and others others like that that have been a little bit confusing and and on several occasions PGMOL or whoever answers the questions have come back to them and said yeah look we did make a mistake there or this is why it was done or we can understand why you were un- unhappy with this I don't know whether they've asked about Baldock um, on Saturday and I don't know whether there would really be any any point I mean I, I said to somebody on Twitter after the game there is almost no purpose in discussing this anymore because so much of it is so baffling and it just seems to be so repetitive that you almost just have to let it let it lie but so I, I would be surprised if they haven't asked for a bit of clarification about it because as I say it looked like a, a blatant sending off but I think I'd be more interested first and foremost to know whether Graham Scott did actually refer it because if he didn't I can't understand why not I do wonder if because they were engaging the concussion protocols and if VAR has because they check everything I think don't they so VAR has looked at that and said well he's banged his head off the floor Therefore, he couldn't have intended to do what he did. It must have been a slip. Do you think there's a logical pathway there? I suppose so. I suppose you could make that argument. But it didn't look like a slip to me. It looked as if he was diving in for the ball. And you would say that even if he has slipped, he's quite clearly out of control. So it's a dangerous tackle and it, it is putting Roberts at risk. And I think on, on those grounds, 
you have to say to yourself that should be that should be a dismissal. One of the things I found really odd about VAR when it comes to fouls is the number of times that a challenge will be referred to the VAR to look for a red card and the VAR will decide no, but it won't result in a booking either. So what you're effectively saying is that the referee wanted to check, was that worthy of a red card, but didn't think it was worthy of a yellow card in the first place. It's The whole thing is just really peculiar and it, it feels to me, I mean, we're, we're a season into this now and obviously Leeds are quite late to VAR given that it was introduced before they were promoted, but it still feels a long, long way from settling down to the point where people are content with it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's talk money. Uh, the accounts for the 2019-2020 season came out in the last seven days. That's the accounts for the promotion season, uh, the first effects of COVID. And we've seen quite a sizable loss. But underneath that, actually, it's nowhere near as bad as you might imagine because Echoes and PTSD from Ridsdale era says, oh, massive loss um, is terrifying and could jeopardise the club. But it doesn't look anywhere near the same sort of problem. And especially with the Premier League finances as astronomical as they are, Easter Sunday announcement, this one. And every football writer will tell you that it is the highlight of their year, particularly club writers, when um, the accounts are released and you start getting into all these bits and pieces that you don't understand and you, you desperately try to, to pick out from the numbers that, that are in there. The loss, you know, the, the bottom line loss, looks and is very sizable, £62 million. Pounds. I'll, I'll go through this as kind of logically and, and as orderly fashion as, as I can. The thing about Ridsdale and, and the debt that Leeds built up back at that stage was that the debt was built up and, and kept growing in the Premier League. So without Champions League qualification and even with Champions League qualification, it was difficult stroke impossible for Leeds to find the revenue to deal with those debts. There was simply never going to be any way to wipe those out without administration or without some kind of financial wizardry to make that happen unless you had somebody buy in like Abramovich or the Abu Dhabi investors at Manchester City some, something like that it was always going to be a, a catastrophic problem these obviously come in the 13 months before promotion and the reason that they run to 13 months is because obviously the season was delayed so Leeds extended their accounts just to cover the end of the season just to uh, explain that the football accounts normally run July the 1st to June the 30th the following year and then the new football calendar year starts on July the 1st that's when contracts start that's why you always see signings officially announced around the start of July. That's right. Or at least free transfers are always done at the start of July because that's when deal ends and then they're, they're free to free to move on. And, and clearly, if it hadn't been for COVID, the season would have finished in May, as we all expected. So this financial year would have been 12 months rather than 13. And the, and the purpose of the 13th was purely to extend it beyond July the 22nd, which was when the season actually officially finished. A couple of things to say first is that of the £62 million loss, £20 million of that was paid in promotion bonuses to players and staff. And these are contractual commitments that every club has and that every club is required to pay when, when they go up. Obviously, the, the the amount and the cost of it will differ from club to club. But in Leeds, in Leeds' case, for promotion, there were bonuses of, of £20 million across the board. There was also a TV rebate, Premier League TV rebate of £7 million, which despite the fact that Leeds were in the Championship, it was shared that the cost of that rebate or, or um, meeting that rebate was shared between not only the existing Premier League clubs, but also the clubs that, that were coming up, of, of which Leeds were one. And there was a, actually quite a, a small, I say small, I mean, it, it was £2 million odd, which is not an insignificant amount of money, but in the grand scheme of what a club like Leeds now earn, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a drop in the ocean. But that was the effect of COVID and the loss of crowds towards the end of the season. They projected that the turnover would be around about 56 million in the end it came in at, at 54 million but they have um submitted a, an insurance claim for that loss of cash for the two and a half million pounds and that's been accepted so essentially that that will fall into the the next accounts so they could have pushed the the bonuses into the next accounts quite easily they could have pushed the rebate into the next accounts quite easily in which case you would be deducting 27 million pounds from the overall loss and and rather than 62 million pounds you would be looking at closer to to £30 million. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been an issue if they hadn't come up. The 
EFL in the Championship still has um, strict rules on profit and sustainability, which, according to the, the statement in these accounts, Leeds were compliant with in this year. And and you'll you'll remember going back, you know, twelve months, eighteen months, a lot of talk from Angus Kinnear in particular, and but Radrazani also about the fact that Leeds were pretty close to the PNS limit, and that was why they were having to be a little bit careful with transfers, why they couldn't push it too far, because if if they did breach the the scale of losses that they were allowed, there were going to be sanctions, and they were going to you know they'd be at risk of a fine or or transfer embargo or whatever else from the EFL. So what we can deduce from this is that had they not been promoted and had they stayed down, they would have had to have made some fairly significant cuts. I don't think there's any doubt that Calvin Phillips would have been sold, and you know the sort of fee they would have earned from him would probably have covered much of the loss anyway. But the wage bill even without the um, the promotion bonuses, was up over 55, 56, 57 million pounds. So more than the, the overall turnover. And they would have had to have tightened the belts without any question. I mean, I, I was saying in a piece this week that there was a bit of chat towards the end of last season about the fact that Bielsa was inquiring about what the average wage was for a championship manager. I think he realised that if, he was, if promotion did go begging and he was going to stay on for season three, he couldn't expect or ask to be paid the salary package that he and his staff were being paid because there were going to have to be some trimming of the fat. You know, they they were going to have to operate in a a slightly more frugal manner. But the reality is that they did go up. They have been promoted. They do have Premier League income. If you look at the cash in hand and cash at the bank as of the end of these accounts at the point where they've been promoted compared to where they were 30 months earlier, 30 months earlier, they had just under half a million pounds in cash, either in hand or, or at the bank. At the end of these accounts, they're thirty-one million pounds, and that was essentially because the first tranche of Premier League TV cash had landed, and that makes you realise that yes, the bottom line loss figure looks very high. Yes, you can understand why people would be concerned about that, but financially, they're now swimming in completely different waters. Yeah, the um, the losses allowed in the EFL thirty-nine million pounds over a rolling three-year period, isn't it? Yeah. So without a doubt, they've they've pushed it to you know they they've gone as far as they could in this year and I think it's safe to say that had they having missed out in Bielsa's first year had they followed that up by missing out in his second year given again the the excellent position they were in it was very difficult to see how in the the season that followed i.e. this season they would have anything like the same chance again because they would they would have had to have made changes to the squad they would have had to have thought seriously about the size of the wage bill but it it was and, and is a, a very calculated risk. I think they, they knew the reasons why they were going for Bielsa. They knew he was going to be expensive, but they also understood and, and told themselves what the make weight of that would be if it if it worked. And it has worked absolutely spectacularly. And there was a line from Kinnear in the accounts in, in his statement where he said, the biggest risk to Leeds is divisional status, effectively, if, which is to say that if they get relegated, then there are big problems, you know, and, and that's true for, for most Premier League clubs. But it would certainly be true for Leeds particularly after the the investment in players last summer. But he said, you know, the, the whole idea of the project was to build a structure that was good enough not only to get promoted, but to stay there. Uh, and staying there was almost as critical as going up in the first place. And given that with eight games to go, they're 11th and they're on 42 points and they're safe, they're now guaranteed a second year of, of Premier League income. And you can't in any way say that the gamble with Bielsa wasn't worth it. Yeah, and it's not even really, a, it's not a big gamble either, is it? I mean, the, the figures are frightening, particularly when we factor in the Ridsdale, you know, or the, the aftermath of that. But this was a calculated gamble. It's worth stressing that because the rewards when you get there, as we've seen, are just so, so vast. Question is always as well, who's who's picking up the tab if you make losses? So Kinnear told you, I know, and, and told several of us um, journalists that Radrazani was paying a million to a million and a half a month um, in loans to cover the wage bill because, you know, the turnover wasn't high enough to, to cover that. And if you have an owner like Steve Gibson at, at Middlesbrough who who is willing to pick up losses year after year after year, you can continue to sustain them. The problem comes if those losses start to breach PS and if you find that you're either under a transfer embargo or that you're not able to recruit in the way that you want to or you find yourself being forced to sell players who are absolutely critical to the, the style of play. I mean, if you imagine Bielsa staying on and Phillips leaving, which I'm absolutely certain Phillips would have done, you know, it was there was a kind of there was this kind of gentleman's agreement that he'd sign his five year deal and he would give it another go at Leeds. But you are talking about somebody who's now a fully fledged England international. 
and is a Premier League footballer and, and who it wouldn't have been fair to say, look, you need to devote your entire career to Leeds, regardless of what division we're in. At some point, you know, his individual ambition was going to stretch out and, and take him take him elsewhere. But if you imagine Leeds without Phillips, as good a coach as Bielsa is, that would have been extremely difficult to allow for and, and it would have been extremely difficult for them to have maintained exactly the same style at the same level of performance, minus that key figure in defensive midfield. So those would have been the implications. It's not to say that the losses would have been damaging in terms of the health of the club, but it might have set them back in terms of trying to get promoted. You know, you, you might have then been back into a long stretch of attempting to reset, attempting to go again, but finding it quite difficult because that momentum and impetus that you have is kind of kiboshed that it, it hits the wall. So it, it, I do think it was critical to get promoted, but not from the point of view of the survival of the club. It does feel like there's more of a squeeze on the Football League finances and it's getting tighter and tighter every year when you see what an absolute car crash the whole thing is. The good thing about all this, the great white hope, if you like, is the revenues that they absolutely smashed it out of the park, even with COVID factored into it. They've done tremendously well there and it feels like now we're in the Premier League, they're only just scratching the surface there. There was a deliberate target, Radrazani and the board, Kinnear and, and Alter, the, the target was to hit turnover of 50 million plus, which was way in excess of, of other sides in the championship. And they've done that. You know, even in a COVID year, it's gone to 54 million. And the merchandising numbers at £50 million are, are massive for, for that division and should, in theory, have gone up quite spectacularly this year given that they've had the Adidas kit deal and they seem to have basically completely sold out of kit and, and training gear. One of the things that jumped out to me and that I thought was was interesting was the fact that had there not been COVID and had the last five games of the season had crowds, there would have been very little difference between the gate receipts in Bielsa's first season and the gate receipts in his second, which explains again why it is that they're looking at the redevelopment of the West Stand and the North Stand. And I, I think it might not be too long before we see the button getting pushed on that because that is the obvious area where you can grow commercially and, and financially. That's the area where if you bump the, the capacity up to 55,000, the differences are very, very significant. And because they've been packing out since Bielsa came, you know, the uptake of tickets has been massive from the point at which he came through the door. There is no scope to increase on that. There are no extra seats. There are no extra corporate facilities. It, it is what it is, to use a terrible phrase, and they're almost maximising the money they can make from, from the stadium. But if the stadium is twice as big again, or almost twice as big again, then it the numbers and the, the graph starts to spike quite dramatically. So that was one of the things that, that jumped out, and I think one of the things that underlined why it is that they want to make that expansion. Just to go back to the, the insurance policy, which we're, we're claiming on, is that something that other clubs have had in place, or is that something that, that was specific to Leeds because it's not something I've really heard talked about. All I've heard is talk of how much clubs are going to lose. This suggests that actually there's, there's something there to cover it for Leeds. I haven't looked through other club accounts to see if there's anything like that in it, but I would assume that if Leeds have that provision, others might as well. But it it's important to say that, for example, it hasn't covered the TV rebate. So even though that is a, a consequence of COVID, they aren't able to claim back that £7 million. It's purely covered what I think was the, the gap in commercial income. And, and as I say, if they had that insurance, you would assume that the other clubs would have done as well. It's important to say as well that there is financial support behind Leeds. I mean, the accounts make reference to the £23 million purchase of shares by 49ers Investment, which happened um, in December. So that's obviously been pretty crucial working capital for a club who've, who've had the revenue streams chopped. Um, there was a reference as well to for the loan facility of £43 million, which I think almost certainly refers to the forward funding deal that a lot of Premier League clubs do. I, I wrote about this after the transfer window, but essentially clubs organise loan facilities with banks or lenders and it's secured against TV income and it's paid back in instalments. And, and in order to make sure that you do pay it back and that it doesn't become a you know a, a liability that you can't meet, the, the TV money is paid directly by the Premier League to the lenders to make sure that the integrity of the whole system is is held up. So it's not in any way unusual that, and a lot of Premier League clubs do it, but it does just, again, give you a bit of extra cash, a bit of liquid liquid capital at a time where clubs definitely need it. Because that's the sort of like hot bottom thing that's going to panic Leeds fans when they think, oh, we're borrowing against future TV revenues. But like you said, there is a, a really definite structure in place there that the Premier League is involved in and they see that the revenue goes back. That's important to stress. And also think about the numbers. As I said, the, the, you know, the cash in hand and at the bank was 30, £31 million, which is the first of three portions of broadcast revenue that comes through the season. And again, Leeds are going into a second season in the Premier League. So we'll have these these big hits of money coming again. 
that's not to say that they don't have big expenses. And you know, I, my understanding of the wage bill, which was at around, I think around about fifty-eight million pounds in the championship, is that it will nigh on have doubled. So it will be much closer to a hundred million pounds in the financial year that we're in. So it's not as if all the money coming in from TV cash is there to be spent on whatever you feel like. You know, the, there are always liabilities. But that's just the reality of, of running a club. And I think it's it's safe to say that there are plenty of Premier League clubs who are operating with forward funding deals and, and finance them no problem at all. And Kinnear said last last summer when they did the deals for Rodrigo and Rafinha and Llorente and, and Robin Koch that part of the reason for spending as much as they did last summer was so that there wasn't excessive pressure on them to carry on spending like that. It's not to say that they won't do deals in the next window that comes around because they, they definitely will. But I think the, the kind of mindset at Leeds was that we don't want to be spending or committing £100 million in each window because it's not particularly prudent and it's not particularly sustainable. And if you actually build a good squad, it shouldn't be necessary either. So there's always there's always a balance, but I think the, the feeling generally is that it's unfortunate that they've gone up in a COVID year because clearly that is going to that is going to leave shortfalls in the accounts as, as it will everywhere. People will have seen the, the figures over at Manchester City, which were very, very steep in terms of their, their losses. And a lot of that was COVID related. But there is a feeling that by getting promoted and, and getting you know being able to dip their feet into the money that's in the Premier League, they'll, they'll be fine. There is an argument that says, though, even though we've lost revenues due to COVID, it should squeeze the transfer market a little bit as well, because other clubs, you know, you've seen TV deals collapse in, in France, for example. There should be a a fairly rich seam to mine there if we're going for players um, this coming summer. So you may get the trade-off there. It's also worth stressing that £100 million in transfer fees committed last summer isn't all payable last summer. It's stretched out over sometimes over the terms of contracts or sometimes over two or three years. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, they, they amortised all of the fees and clubs generally tend to do that. From what I was told, I, I don't think last summer they spent more than around about £3 million on a single individual player there and then. And I think a lot of the deals were, were weighted so that the, the payments got steeper and, and increased as, as you went through through the contracts. Um, so again, I mean, that, that sort of stuff is all in the background and you've got to be mindful of it and nobody is going to pay that money for you. You know, you need to use your income and you need to use your revenue to fund it. But as much as expenses and everything else spike quite dramatically in the Premier League, so does the, the income. And they're on a completely different plane now when it comes to earning money, not just TV revenue. I know that's what what you get bogged down in talking about because that is the bulk of it. But they've got a shirt sponsorship deal which has jumped from around about £750,000 a year with 32 red to more like £7 million with SBO top. The Adidas kit deal will be significant amount of money. That There will come a point where crowds come back in and commercially you're able to properly exploit the fact that you've got Premier League football at Ellen Road rather than, than Championship football. Uh, so I do genuinely feel like they're they're in a pretty good place. I don't think there's any doubt that they need to stay in the Premier League to stay in a good place, but that applies to just about 20 clubs in that division. Just looking at the other side of the finances as well, like you know, they said they budgeted for finishing 17th, which would bring, let's say, on an average year, about £100 million worth of TV and prize money. Whereas actually, if we finish around mid-table, given everything, um, and the number of times we've been on telly, it's probably going to be more like, as we said the other week, 130 million. So already you can see an extra maybe 30 million quid of revenue that they hadn't budgeted for this summer. There's also no sign at all of Bielsa dropping off, you know, in terms of his expectations for um, individual games or anything else. I I was writing after the Sheffield United game about the 23s because the 23s at the moment are very, very close to being promoted from the Premier League 2 division which they are going to win by a country mile. And I know that Bielsa uses ringers, if you want to put it that way, in, in as much as you will see Hernandez roll up in those games, you'll see Rodrigo roll up in those games. Rafinha has played in, in 23's games this season. But I think it's still fair to say that the best performances amongst that group have, have come from the actual bona fide 23s like Gelhard and, and others. And when you looked at the squad on Saturday, it was almost entirely senior footballers you know it was starting to get to the point of being a near first choice squad and actually this weekend against City Bielsa will have with the exception of Adam Forshaw and obviously Jack Harrison is ineligible but he's fit he will have basically a fully fit squad you know which is pretty much unheard of in, in his time and this is the point of the season where on 42 points you get that old cliche of play the kids give the kids a go blood the kids and I actually think it's probably quite likely that we'll see Bielsa harden in the other direction because he won't want to be seen in any way 
to be throwing any of the games or to be taking any of the games lightly or to be experimenting in matches that have consequences for other teams in the division. And I thought, you know, I, I thought that was pretty noticeable on Saturday that you do have this outstanding crop of 23s of which, you know, some of them look seriously, seriously talented. But actually his mindset at the moment is still to go full strength and, and still to play as if as if everything matters. And perhaps it'll be different when you get to the end of the season and you're playing West Brom and, and they've been relegated. But on top of that, you know, we were saying that position in the Premier League worth around about £3 million. There is still financially something something to play for and clearly they're not going to get into Europe and they're not going to go down but it doesn't mean that the that the matches don't count and Bielsa said that before Sheffield United he said you know no position in the in the division exempts you from making effort so as a bleak pessimist Michael would you even you concede that the club's in pretty rude health at the minute I'm more concerned about the collapse of the whole thing you know the TV deals <laughs> falling around I mean in, in truth there has been a, there is a long-term concern about it because a lot of the TV deal that certainly the UK TV deal is based upon companies trying to sell other things as well as football. So Sky try and sell you broadband and a wider TV package as the BT Amazon try and get you to use Amazon prime, which you then use to buy drills, batteries, jigsaws, whatever, you, whatever you're buying for Amazon. <laughs> well, welcome to Norman's world. <laughs> so that's sort of, it's, it's not just about, you're not just buying the football from these companies. Are you? So I guess if there was a, if the whole model changed at that point, the TV deal could could dip. But you could have said this at any point in the last thirty years, like the TV money might might drop, and it doesn't ever do seem to do, does it? So I think the game has kind of put itself in collective peril, isn't it? So if anything seismic like that was to happen, it's going to have consequences for everybody. And in the same way that if you go down into the championship and you look at the the figures and the the amount of money that's being lost, it's horrific and. But nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. And and how can you when the disparity between the Premier League and the Championship is is so massive? If you're going to compete, with rare exceptions, you do really have to do what Leeds have done, which is push the numbers. I mean, I, I always remember Chilino's um, first financial year. He tried to get the player wage bill down to around about £13 million. And he did it. And the, the club-wide wage bill was 19 You know, it was less than 20 So almost a, a third of what it is at the moment. And you're only talking five or six years on. And you remember that Adam Pearson was there at the time as his sort of de facto chief exec and, and advisor. And I spoke to Pearson about it back then. And, and he said, I understand why he's doing this because, you know, the club's a mess financially and it needs to get more orderly. But from my experience of the championship, a wage bill of £30 million is not going to get you promoted. So if you're happy to accept that, if you're happy to accept that it's probably going to lead to mid-table football... You can operate in that fashion. But if you start to come under pressure to compete for promotion and to compete properly, you know, to be in the mix as Leeds have been or were for, for two seasons running, you've got to spend more than that. But of course, clubs don't have the income and, and the means without an owner to fund it to spend that sort of cash. They don't have that money available, but they still try to spend it. And the whole thing is in a complete mess. And, and people have been warning about this for years and years and it's a free market, so nothing ever really happens. And the Premier League just seems to, certainly prior to COVID, just seems to get richer and richer and richer. There's more more money there, um, and it is it is problematic. But you know, like, like Michael says, you could have the the monumental collapse of TV deals overnight one day. But is any club going to be immune from that? I mean, Manchester City probably would be to an extent. Chelsea might be fine with Abramovich. Everybody else is going to have real real problems. Match day 31 for Leeds United on Saturday lunchtime at Manchester City, who will be completely distracted by the Champions League. So a definite nailed on three points for us, um, even if we are without Jack Harrison, as you mentioned before, Phil. Definite nailed on three points. Actually, I mean, Guardiola did say himself that if there was a game he could have avoided in between two legs against Dortmund, this would definitely have been it, given that Leeds are going to run City into the ground, irrespective of the, the result. And also the, the Dortmund game is very, very much in, in the balance ahead of the second leg in, in Germany. So Guardiola is going to have to manage things fairly carefully. I mean, they, they are just, I know they've got the extraordinary squad at Eastlands, but they are fighting on all fronts, literally, this season. And I think we'll we'll see changes to his team. I think there'll, there'll have to be changes to his team. But let's not kid ourselves about about their form or, or how they've played for most of, of this season. I think the encouragement for Leeds would have to be the way that the first game at Ellen Road went, which I still feel was there to be one for Leeds um, up until probably the, the last 10 minutes. And 
actually, if if I'm being totally honest, not by no means the best result of the season, but I do think right up there with the best performances, given who they were playing, and more to the point, the way that they worked that game out from a pretty difficult position 20, 25 minutes in. It was a coming-of-age game in a way, wasn't it? It was a welcome to the Premier League because we looked a little bit rabbit in the headlights for that first early, was it 20 minutes or thereabouts, um, that spell. I reckon we've, we give ourselves a chance. If we do that again, if we if we capitulate in the first 20 minutes and concede, then I think we'll probably lose on Saturday. But if we can keep it at least tight enough that we keep a foothold in the game for 20 minutes, then I think our chance increases as the game goes on. They were very clever at Ellen Road to begin with in that they, Guardiola used Mares as a, a bit of a sort of false name, but but up front. And out of possession, he basically cut off the passing lanes to Phillips, which meant that Phillips in the middle of the field was becoming pretty isolated and finding it very difficult to get on the ball. But also for those 20 minutes, he and Cleek just seemed to be shadows behind Foden and, and De Bruyne. I mean, I've seen loads of Foden and De Bruyne over the years, but not too often in the flesh. And and in those 20 minutes, you did just think, Christ, you know, look at the, the quality here. And I guess that the skill and, and the intensity of the play, it was almost impossible to live with. But what happened that night was that basically Phillips and Cleek started to work out what they had to do in order to get back into the game. So Phillips started taking up different positions, shifting out wide if there was space out wide. Cleek started to get on the ball, started to put more pressure on on Foden and De Bruyne in particular. And little by little, they got on top of the, the midfield. And, and it was very clear by the second half, once Rodrigo came on and, and once Leeds got the bit between their teeth, that neither De Bruyne nor Foden were enjoying the game anymore. And and I don't think Guardiola was either. And it, it really did take the introduction of Fernandinho off the bench with about 10, 12 minutes to go to settle that match down from City's perspective, that that was the decision that kind of killed the game and, and meant that the kind of overwhelming style that, that Leeds were playing in and, and the pressure that was on City dissipated a bit and and you know kind of left the game to run to a one-all draw and there was a, a, a quite a big shout from City for a penalty late in the game as well, which was a very, very borderline decision. But in spite of that, I thought Leeds were the, the better team for most of it and I, I think they'd, they'd have merited a win on the night. And as I say, given that a lot of sides turn up against City and, and get a, a good old pace in. You would definitely take some encouragement from that. Man City do feel like a, a bit of a different team than the one at the start of the season. And, and, yes. and at the start of the year, they were kind of being referred to as, as like a Man City tribute team. and they, they kind of looked like a Man City team. And there were times when you they sort of were passing as that, but then there just wasn't that same rhythm and stuff there. Whereas I think we can well and truly say that they, they now have that. Have they been made to look better though by the lack of anybody else putting together a good run in the Premier League? Well, you could you could apply the same argument to Liverpool last season, couldn't you? In that there was a big drop off from from City, but I don't think that changes the fact that Liverpool were a very very good side last season and extremely consistent. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was a little surprised, and I think other people were too, when City stepped in and, and gave Guardiola a new contract because you did have it in your head that perhaps. He was coming to the end of the line there and perhaps the, the book was about to close on, on what he'd done and it's that thing about cycles, isn't it? it can he make City go again or has he done everything that, that he can do there a little bit like it, it was at, at Bayern Munich? And it feels to me that since they made that commitment and, and since they, they took the decision to, to commit to him and to say, no, do you know what? He, he can he can do this again and he can he can pick the, the club back up. It's looked very astute and it's it's looked as if it's helped. And I mean, their, their run of victories up until losing to, to Manchester United and, and since then as well, it's just been extraordinary. It's like relentless and, and Michael is right. I think they're a different animal now to the animal they were back when Leeds, Leeds first played them. But I don't think that, that changes the, the quality of the performance from Leeds in, in that first game. And I don't think it, it means that Leeds don't have a, a sliver of a chance at Eastlands. I mean, I've seen some tweets this week of people saying, can we just forfeit the game and take the 3-0 defeat and move on? And I think that's a little bit, and it's a bit negative. I think we're better than we realise we are. Yes, I think it's probably safe to say that you wouldn't put money on taking anything from these next three games. I think you would hope that Leeds would. Um, and the, the one thing that is definitely missing from this is a, this season is a big scalp. We had Bielsa's presser earlier and, and someone said to him, you know, your record against the top six, top seven is not particularly impressive this season is that the natural flow of things or or actually should you be doing better and he said it certainly stands to reason that a promoted club are not going to start throwing the weight around and, and knocking out your established sides who are regularly competing for the title or for, for Champions League places 
But he did say that is something we want to address and it is something we, we want to improve on. I think he's aware that there are sides around Leeds in the table who've had some very good results against some of the, the bigger teams. And you know that in the same way as he was able to get Bilbao to compete with Guardiola's Barcelona and, and everything else, he would like to see the, the same happen. And, and the reason that Guardiola didn't want this to fall between two Champions League legs is because Leeds tend to run further than anybody else. They tend to push you harder than anybody else. They don't tend to bail out of games, even if like at Arsenal, they're 4-0 down, you know, or at, at Old Trafford, they're 4-0 down. It just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And it's very difficult for, you know, even if City win the game, it will be very difficult for them to to win this at a canter. But without any doubt, they're very, very strong favourites. I think the fact that Dortmund gain, the Dortmund tie, sorry, is... is nicely poised it does give us a bit of a chance and I, I can see the logic in people saying a 3-0 defeat we'll just take it and, and in some respects we could be here in a week's time having lost 3-0 and saying well yeah it might happen yeah. not a bad result you know whatever but let's see take, take let's it, see it take could it at least be fun it. take it after the game though rather than beforehand yeah. saying yeah get beat 3-0 never mind yeah absolutely never mind at, at the end of it but we go and have a dig and and particularly because it's not as if you need to be in any way concerned about the results that are coming later in the day or, or over the rest of the, the weekend. That's the, the bonus of the position they're in, is that even though Bielsa would never let you ever talk about dead rubbers or games that, that don't matter, there isn't going to be any consequence of, of these matches for Leeds. And and they they kind of are there to to be won if you, if you want to look at them in, in that way. I, I think City will win this. I, I do think it will be a, a home win because they just have... They just have quality everywhere and, and the form is absolutely ludicrous. But I don't think Guardiola saying that this is the worst game they could have had is, is lip service. I think he probably means it. I mean, there's respect built into the fact that he rested a few of those key players um, against Dortmund in the first leg through the week. Yes, I mean, I suspect given how they played against Dortmund, it'll be a very similar side over there. But he does have options. I mean, plenty of options. So you would think we might see people like Sterling play. We might see... Fernandinho come in. There's, there is Aguero if he if he wanted to give Aguero a go. Torres, Mendy. You know that there will surely be some shuffling of the team because he he has to prioritise the game in Germany next week. In the same way as Leeds are basically safe, the title is basically won. There's just no way City can drop off to the extent that they would need to for anybody to get back into that. But the one thing about Guardiola is that he he clearly hates losing games. I think he's like Bielsa in that sense that he, he doesn't want to sit back and say well it doesn't really matter because if we win in Dortmund in, on Wednesday or if we qualify over there then then that was the priority of this week you, you can tell from their recent form that he absolutely loves these big streaks of, of victories and it's, it's what he lives for we Just, see the way the way he tackles the League Cup as well in that he, he does rest players in it but he also tends to leave in at least five or six solid first team as well because he just as Phil says he likes winning every single match that he plays just going back to what you were saying, um, Bielsa's comments about the table, I'm just looking at the table now and broadly speaking, we've beaten the teams below us and lost to the teams above us with the exception of uh, Leicester, Everton and Villa. So I guess when you start to chip away at those teams above you, the top sort of eight or whatever, get a few more wins from them, that's how you start to creep up the table and you start start competing at a higher level. Yeah, it is. It is. And that, that'll be the purpose of any business that's done over the summer will be to try and consolidate this and, and to to drag Leeds a little further up and a little closer to some of the sides who who are above them. I mean, he, he has the benefit, Bielsa. As I say, Harrison will be missing this weekend and you would assume that that will most likely bring Hilda Costa into the team, which will, will leave a decision whether to switch Rafinha over to the left, which I hope he doesn't, but Costa does seem to be more effective down the right when, when he is effective at all. But that will most likely be be the only change and, and with the exception of Forshaw, Everybody else will be available. So Bielsa almost has a, a, a very, very marginal advantage in that he can use his players as he pleases without having to worry about what's coming further down the line. I think Guardiola will have to manage it slightly more and, and be mindful. But that is not to ignore the extent of the quality at City, which is miles beyond what, what Bielsa has in his squad. Do you think maybe as an alternative, they put Click into midfield and push Dallas to left back and Alioski further forward on the left? Well, Alioski did play in the first game, so it's a possibility. I just don't think you would be taking Dallas out of out of the midfield at the moment. It might be that he does that. It, it's a, a definite option. But if you did do that, you would need a much bigger performance from Click than we've seen from him for, for quite a while now. And I said earlier in the podcast that Dallas is, is starting to look actually like 
almost like a first choice number eight. Um, and you know he was probably man of the match against Sheffield United, a few other contenders as well. But he would certainly have been in the conversation. And because of that, I think you'd be inclined. I would be inclined to keep him there. And, and Bielsa isn't often drawn into to big sort of tactical switches like that if he doesn't need to. One to watch then from the weekend and some predictions for it. You're obviously going for home win, Phil, because you said so. Yes. Again, it's the midfield battle for me because that, to my mind, was the critical thing in the first game at Ellen Road. It was the, the period to begin with where Foden and De Bruyne were on top, followed by the period where Phillips and, and Cleek started to, to dictate play. Whoever gets the, the upper hand there and, and whoever controls the pitch in that area will win without a question, or at least should win, win the game. I, I think any time you're up against City and they, they dominate in that zone, you're in a lot of trouble. But equally, that is true when Leeds do do the same. So, a, a, you know, really, really fascinating tussle coming there. I think on our podcast, I might have predicted 6-3 to Man City or something ridiculous, which is not inconceivable, I would no, say. No, I, I think that's quite a good shout, actually. Something <laughs> something wild and, and off the wall, yeah. And I'll try to enjoy it. Just be grateful that we're not watching... You know, Richard Keogh. I know it's hard watching good players do good things against us, but probably better than that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I expect us to lose, but just for the sake of, of balancing the universe and optimism, I'm going to go for a Leeds United win. Well, I- why not? It makes me wonder what Guardiola would make of a 6-3 City win. Would he be able to sit back and say, that was really enjoyable, you know, that was a great spectacle and, and terrific for the neutral or would it eat away at the perfectionist in him, thinking that's not the way my games should be going? You know, I expect to win games six 0 not not six three. He could probably drop another sixty million on a centre back then. I can't need to try and fix it. <laughs> I've just realised I predicted. I think I said I expect us to lose, but then I also said on the Square Ball podcast we'll draw, and I've just gone for a Leeds win. So I've covered all bases. Every, every base covered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, home win for me. I think City will win three one. I think Leeds, if we are going to win, it's we get an early goal and then we get a second goal not long after that that goes completely like it blows our minds, blows us out of the water. We don't expect it to happen. But one of those magical days that Leeds very occasionally have on the telly. Yeah, could be. Could be. Let's hope. Uh, just returning to something you said there about uh, planning for next season, do you get the sense that the club are on now with some transfers? Are things starting to tick over behind the scenes? They've been on for quite a while. I think pre-Christmas and then through January, most of the work was done, certainly focused on what would come in, in the next window, given that they, they didn't plan to, to spend much or anything and in the end didn't do anything at all in January. There's obviously the issue of what's going to happen with Bielsa. Is he going to commit? Will he stay? Will he extend his contract? I still think that the odds are yes, yes, he will. But actually, if you look at the team, it, it's fairly apparent, isn't it, where players are needed? I, I, I always say, I, I think a left-back is has to be one of the, the main focuses, given that there isn't any, still isn't anybody really holding down that position and if you get cover Phillips and you get another midfielder in the the eight ten mould, I think give or take, you even with a different manager, and let's hope it doesn't come to that. I think you'd have a lot of what you needed. When will Mino Raiola's European tour be arriving at, at Leeds Bradford? That would be great, wouldn't it? That would be <laughs> great. We did a piece on the Athletic. You know, um, I I was off on the day actually, so I wasn't able to write about Leeds. But it was basically how would you sell your you moved to to Halland, and I was thinking about all the things being Norwegian that might appeal to him, like um, escaping Castleford, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so let's hope. But no, I, something tells me that we won't be seeing him wandering through arrivals anytime soon. Well, if he does move in the next year or two, we'll get him when he's at the peak of his career. He'll go to one of the leading European clubs now, three or four year contract or whatever, and then that'll expire just as he's coming to his peak, and we are in the Champions League again. That's the plan, isn't it? Getting to Europe in the next four or five years, perfect. He gets to come back to Leeds. You know, stadium, 55, 60,000, Champions League football. It's all set up for three or four years down the line. The idea that he's not already at his peak is a bit terrifying. What's he, is he going to oh, get absolutely. bigger, stronger, t- faster? <laughs> can't, absolutely. Can't he's like, bigger, I know he's like genetically engineered by the, the US military, <laughs> isn't he? But um, he, if you rewind 15 years, 10 years ago to the kind of dark, darkest EFL days at Leeds, he is the sort of player who would have been linked with Leeds from the age of about 33 onwards and would eventually have signed at the age of about 36 and done next to nothing and left. And, and you'd have been sat there thinking, if only this guy joined it at his, at his peak. But um, crazy money. Just returning to the realistic transfers for a second, because I have, I have great fun going on, on Wacko, going on the transfer thread there on the forum. And they dissect every word you say, Phil, and they're trying to figure out where the five signings, up to five signings, 
are going to come. So can you offer a little bit of clarity on what you think the club Phil, are going to do? Phil does actually have a list in his wallet of five players he knows we're signing, but yeah. he just doesn't want to tell anyone. Yeah. I'm going to start doing this in Japanese just to, to add to the fun, try and dissect that. I mean, is, is um, your, does your position, does, your, your I, opinion, does it come from, I know you speak to them and you've got an idea about what they're doing and you speak to agents and so on and so forth, not to give away all the secrets, but is it based on what you see with your eyes on the pitch? Um, no, it's, it's based on... on what you hear and what you're told and, and who you speak to. I mean, a lot of it's fluid in the sense that, say, for example, Casilla goes. If some if they find a, a club for Casilla or if Casilla asks to leave and they're able to do that, then you're going to see a goalkeeper coming in, I would imagine. Um, if Casilla sticks around and commits to the club, then you don't need uh, another keeper. It seems to me that the, the real sort of priority positions, left back, cover for Phillips and attacking midfielder, I think those are the three that they would they would definitely, definitely want to do. But... He's always kind of open-minded as author about other things that he, he might do. I think even in January, despite the fact that they kind of telegraphed the, the intention to do very little, stroke nothing, and to avoid spending money, they're always sort of on the toes so that if something comes up at, at the last minute or comes up at short notice that is worth doing, they'll go and do it. I mean, clearly, Cuisance, for example, from Bayern Munich and Rafinha are not even remotely the same player. You know, completely different players. Cuisance went under week or so before the, the transfer deadline Rafinha became an option two, three days before the, the deadline passed and because they knew and because Arthur and Bielsa knew how good Rafinha was and, and how good value he'd be at £70 million that deal was done so you landed a winger where a week earlier you were looking at a, a centre mid and in the end no no centre mid materialised before the deadline so it is all quite fluid and it, it can move and, and it, it can change. I, I think it will be similar to last summer in that I, I do think they'll have a, a reasonable amount to spend and I don't think they'll be shy in the, the amount they spend, but it won't be massive numbers and it won't be a complete tear up of, of what's there because a little bit like last summer, they still have a lot of faith and a lot of confidence in the, the basic core of the squad. But it feels like they want to keep that you know, absolutely paramount. That is so important to its its evolution, not revolution, as the as the phrase goes. Well, also, which of the players who who were promoted with them and and have been regulars in the team would you say have been found out this season? I don't think many stroke any really. I think they've all coped. How they'll cope in season two is another question because it, you do see as we've seen with Sheffield United, but it's happened at other clubs as well. You can see a, a decrease in form and and a, a decrease in consistency. In the second year, when I guess the the adrenaline goes and the and and a bit of the the momentum from promotion is is lost as well. But for example, would you go and look for another right back to replace Ailing? I don't think you would. Would do you want a different defensive mid to replace Phillips? Definitely not. I still think they need cover there, but not a, a first choice option. Dallas looks absolutely fine. Click looks tired, but I think when he's played well this season, has looked absolutely adequate for the level and. You know, Bamford still has a chance if he gets on a little bit of a roll of, of getting close to or up to 20 goals this season. So the transition's been really, really good and it cuts out the need to, or, or it cuts out any panic and, and the need to look at the, the team or the squad and say, do you know what, some pretty drastic changes is needed here. It'll be the same attitude, particularly if Bielsa stays, that most of these will make up the, you know, the spine of his team next season. And it doesn't feel like we're about to do a Sheffield United, does it? It feels like the, we have enough quality in the squad to stay up going forward. It doesn't feel, it felt like that Sheffield United team like massively, massively overachieved, whereas it feels like we've done maybe marginally better than you could expect. Well, that's what the table reflects. Actually, what I was saying before, we've beaten the teams below us, broadly speaking, and lost to the ones above us. So we're about placed right in the table. And the, and the Sheffield United team is based around people like Chris Basham, who are kind of getting getting older and, and truthfully have never actually been top players they they kind of were in the at the twilight of their career and doing very well and people like Billy Sharp with crucial goals we don't feel like it doesn't feel like we're built on sand in quite the same way God the way you said Chris Basham there it reminds me of a book written by a Scottish football writer a guy called Bill Leckie and he was talking about bumping into to another journal Graeme Spears who used to write for the Scotsman in Scotland on Sunday which was you know kind of high market newspaper in comparison to some of what Leckie wrote for which is like the Daily Record or, or The Sun or whatever and he said he bumped into to Spears um, who I know I know to, to speak to he, he said they bumped into him and Spears said to him I heard that the other week uh, you went to somewhere like Alloa uh, you were at Alloa to report and Leckie was saying Except he said Alloa to rhyme with gonorrhea. <laughs> like, like that. The way you said Basham there, I just thought, oh dear, bless him. I do feel like they're, 
are differences. I think one of the major ones, hopefully, will be that this summer, you'd like to think that Leeds across the board, so, so from Radrazani to Kinnear to Otter and to Bielsa, will be on the same page in the way that I think it's safe to say Sheffield United won last summer. And you would like to think that the recruitment will be more skillful and more targeted and, and more in tune with what they actually need to move forward as opposed to what felt a bit scattergun at Bramall Lane, particularly when they, they got around to spending so much on Brewster late in, in the window. So yes, I think without being complacent, they ought to have more of a platform and, and more stability than, than there was for Wilder. And it's fine anyway. If Bielsa does walk, we can just get Corbin back from Huddersfield, can't we? And there's uh, checks, notes, etc. 7-0 defeats. Ouch. Yeah. Um, get in touch with us via Twitter at the Phil Hay Show and subscribe now to The Athletic for that price of three ninety nine a month for six months. It's 40% off the full price. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to do that. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, I'm Adam Hurry and Football Clichés is the podcast you never knew you needed. Every week, to quite unnecessary depth, we examine the words, the phrases, the accepted wisdom, the mannerisms, the habits, the gestures, the symbols, the sounds and the smells that everyone takes for granted in football, but which really are the glorious glue that holds it all together. For example, have you ever really listened to the Football League goals roundups? I mean, really listen to them? Because they all sound pretty much like this. Team X went into this game with just one win in their last 13. And when Team Y took the lead inside four minutes at Stadium Z, the home fans were probably starting to fear the worst. But Striker A had other ideas, and this game turned on its head in the space of five minutes midway through the second half. First, a smart finish from the edge of the box brought Team X level, and he repeated the trick on the hour mark to bring his tally for the season to 22. By now, Team X were in the mood, and although striker A squandered a gilt-edge chance to complete his hat-trick, on-loan Dutchman winger B made it three with a curling effort from long range. Team Y's misery was compounded in stoppage time when midfielder C's late challenge on fullback D saw them reduced to ten men. An afternoon to forget for manager E's men then, but Team X will hope they have finally turned a corner under caretaker boss manager F. Listen to Football Clichés wherever you get your podcasts and also ad-free when you subscribe to The Athletic.